Thanks, Eric. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the next section in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're following along in your bulletin, you may note that I am not Drew Trends, although I always prayed for it and wanted to be his height. Um, actually, he's 6'6". Six, six. I would have been satisfied with 6'3". Uh, I've been told six feet is okay as well, but it would have been a difference maker in my basketball career. I'm pretty convinced of that. Nonetheless, here I am, uh, six feet tall, uh, opening God's Word with you today. Uh, Drew and his family are sick, and so we just kind of made one of those last-minute last decisions. It's probably better if I step in today, so uh, I'm assuming you'll give me lots of grace if, uh, if things seem a little confusing. Uh, hopefully there's some clarity here. Shout out some please pray for me as I prepared yesterday for, for this message, and I think God was gracious in the, in, the, in the midst of that. So anyway, let's take a look at this passage in together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Uh, I have it here for you, I believe, on, on the screen. And then you can also follow along as well. You can see where it's a little bigger and a little bit wavy going on there too. So we're, it's kind of fun, kind of exciting. If, if you're looking at things warbly, is everybody else seeing that or is it just me? Okay. Whew. That's good. That's good. So here's, here's what Paul says. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is the word of God. Father, would you take the time that we spend in this text and uh, do with it what you will. We pray that the reflections would be accurate and that your Holy Spirit, who fills us and indwells us, would also convict us, too, of where we've perhaps gone astray uh, in our our walking toward maturity, as Paul has been saying in this book, that well, these believers were immature and they needed to grow up. And we recognize we too have areas to grow. So would you shine a light in that, uh, those areas today and move us toward growth for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Friday was Veterans Day, as uh, I, I know many of you recognize. And typically on Veterans Day, uh, I will call my, my gramps. Um, he's 101 now, as some of you know. So in January, he'll, he'll be 102. He's not showing any signs of slowing, slowing down at all. So I texted him just a, a note of gratitude for his sacrifice. And I realized there's a cost 
to the freedom that we have. Last week, we talked about the cost of living out our faith, and we said sometimes there's a literal financial cost associated with that. That's what Paul was saying. There are times, perhaps, when being wronged, even if it's by a brother or a sister, is better than demanding your rights, even if it has finances involved. Here, we're talking about another kind of cost. The cost of the freedom that we have was right there in the last verse. You were bought at a price. The freedom that we have as believers, if you're somebody walking with God, came at a high price. Obviously, it was the death of Christ himself. So there is a purchase price for you today. If you have a clean conscience before God, you know you're forgiven. It wasn't free. And that cost of freedom that Paul is highlighting there that we have in Christ also has a claim on your own life because he paid that price for you. Therefore, in view of that, you also need to count the cost of walking with Christ, perhaps a financial uh, reality, but in this case, even a moral one. There is a claim on you to honor God. And it's not in some sort of like out there sort of way. It's with your body. And this is one of the things I find compelling and convicting about biblical faith. If you ever think that it's completely removed, like I suggested last week, from real life, there's nothing earthier than body. I mean, we are, we're not just spirit, we're body, we're flesh as well. And Paul recognizes that faith does inform how we use our bodies. And if the two are not being instructed to each other, then you're not really understanding what it means to grow up in maturity or even the cost associated with saying, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. And that's what he's saying here. We seek to honor the reality that our freedom was bought at a price, or at least we ought to. And what I'd, I'd like to do this morning is just kind of take a, a verse or two at a time and unpack this a little bit as we think about the cost of freedom. And the first thing that we read here is, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, nobody knows for sure, but this seems like maybe it was a quote among the Corinthian church that they had picked up on. Everything is permissible for me. It could even be something Paul had taught them because he's had previous action. And they took what he said, and they're misapplying it. It's a little bit out of context. So there's this phrase that everything is permissible, and there was a group of people in the church who were focused on freedom. We have absolute freedom to do whatever we want to. You see, Christ paid the price, and therefore, that price has been paid in full. We can do whatever we want to do. There's, there's this sense of freedom, like, yeah, it's okay. He's paid the price. And they weren't really grasping the gravity of that reality in terms of it affecting behavior. And so Paul says, yeah, you're going around saying this thing, everything is permissible, but you have to realize not everything is beneficial and not everything is good because it can ultimately master you. Now, in our, in our day and age, there are a couple of terms that kind of encapsulate this as well. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase antinomianism, and nomian, just about the law. If you're somebody who is a, a nomist, I suppose, you would just be somebody who is focused on the law. Well, anti means against, so you're against the law, and the idea here is that you are free 
you are not lo- no longer constrained to obey any laws because Christ fulfilled the law, and now you're just free. You're free to do what you want. Any old time, right? I mean, that's what it is. It's like Christ has paid it. Even if I sin, it doesn't matter. And there's freedom. And there's a truth in that, isn't there? The freedom that we have, the glorious freedom of the children of God. But it's not without constraints. There's an opposite way this gets kind of worked out a lot of times in church circles, which is legalism. And legalism effectively says that we are bound to duty. You must obey. So bound to duty and obedience that at the end of the day, if you continually fail, you might actually be outside God's kingdom or beyond his reach. And there's a, there's a culture in, in different churches and even sometimes different places that kind of feeds one of these two extremes. One being, I can do whatever I want. And the other being, your value in this community or before God is based on how obedient you are to his laws. And in this church, in Corinthian, the Corinthian church, they're saying things like, apparently, a little bit antinomian, Christ fulfilled the law, therefore, it's a free-for-all. And we know there was a lot of immorality happening, not only in the culture around them, but some shocking things, if you weren't here for chapter 5, that weren't even happening in the culture around them. And somehow they were able to show up Uh, for a worship service, engage in these blatantly immoral activities and say, so what? I'm free in Christ. And Paul is saying, you're thinking wrong about this. Not only, okay, yeah, there's a lot of freedom that you have, but there's another gauge here for whether or not you should be pursuing this. You've got great freedom, but not everything is necessarily good. In fact, sometimes in practicing our freedom, it can be a slippery slope to enslavement. You're no longer, you know, sometimes people are so free that they're enslaved to their freedom, as it were. And it's just, he's saying that can't be the case. You know, one of the, one of the maybe helpful, and this feels a little bit philosophical, and I don't have it up here either, but Paul later, when he's writing to the Philippian church, says this, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, admirable. if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I mean, he's saying we should ask questions like, okay, maybe I can, maybe it's permissible, but uh, is it true? Is it noble? Is it right? These are the kind of things that philosophical people think about. You know, I mean, they spend some time thinking, but is it good? Hmm. And not everybody is designed to sit there and pontificate on that level. I get it. And yet, the Bible does press us to ask that kind of thing. Is it beneficial? Maybe you can do it. But what's it doing to you in the long term? I mean, does anybody see a tech application here with phones and access or what? These are the kind of things we can talk about and discuss. It's hard to put hard and fast rules. Legalism is attractive because you can say you watch more than 30 minutes, you're out of God's kingdom. And so we start to watch. And we say 31, you're out. That was easy. (laughs) It's not that simple. But at the same time, we should be asking, what is this doing to our souls? 
What is this doing to our minds? And it's not just out there in space either, even in Philippians chapter 4, because Paul goes on to say, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. It's incredibly practical. It's not just out there in this world. We need people thinking about that. It affects what you do. And one of the questions on the basic level is, is it really beneficial for me, what I'm doing? And we're all, since we're all kind of, you know, convince ourselves that it's probably okay. That's why we need each other. That's why we need others. That's why we need even God's word and his spirit to offer uh, clarity and conviction. And one of, the, one of the mechanisms for determining whether or not it's beneficial is if you're being mastered by it. If you're so consumed by it that you cannot get along without it. Um, there's this, this quote here that David Pryor says, and I'll back up to the other one. If there's anything I can find on the bottom, if there's anything I find I cannot give up that has become an infringement of my freedom in Christ, if there's anything I find I cannot, that, okay. <laughs> if there's anything I find I cannot give up, that very thing has become an infringement on my freedom in Christ. I, I know there are, there are some in uh, circles I've been in before with even, even with pastors who love exercising their freedom in Christ. They're very loose with their words, maybe coarse joking, swear words, you know, whatever. And, 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 and the idea behind it is, is this thing, like, I'm free in Christ. You know, I can, I can do kind of whatever I want. And at the same time, you wonder, are you a slave to your freedom? Like, it, just because you can do it doesn't mean it's beneficial, necessarily. And are you mastered by it? Is there anything in your life you cannot do without? You could be mastered by that. It might be permissible. Netflix binging. But what happens if you can't do it anymore? Or are there opportunities, I think, even in the next chapter, to say no to something that might be permissible, to show that you're no longer mastered by it. That's one of the reasons why fasting is a good practice to have. I mean, to occasionally just say no to the bodily things of like, dude, I'm hungry. And I want some food. And you can get food because you've got the Chipotle gift cards. Or whatever you like. But you say, no, I'm going to set that aside to remind myself this is a picture of some greater reality, and I will not be mastered by my stomach. You're permissible. You can eat. You can eat anything. Freedom in Christ. Bacon, y'all. <laughs> but it may be the case that you have to sometimes say, no, you will not be mastered by anything. The quote here that you've perhaps heard of from Augustine, love God. And do what you like. Or do what you want. I've heard it both ways. You love God and you do what... You have tremendous freedom. But you see, if you're loving God, the things that you want to do will be dictated by that. You love God and do what you want. It's not a license just to say, I can do whatever I want without considering how it might be flowing from loving God. So when Jesus says, if you love me, You'll obey my commandments. You see how both those things, it's not antinomian, but it's not legalistic either. And Paul's pressing us on that to say everything's permissible but not beneficial. Everything's permissible, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. 
And then he goes on and continues to get very practical and talking about food and stomach issues. In verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. There's this kind of theology of the body that, that Paul is exploring a little bit. And in that day and age, and ever since too, we sometimes think maybe body bad, spirit good. And when Christ comes in the flesh, he destroys that notion. He says, no, that the flesh can be redeemed. He came actually in, in, in humanity. He put on flesh. So what's our view of the body? And Paul says the body is temporary. And so is the stomach. So Paul is framing a proper view of the body where on the one hand, it has a limited shelf life. I, I don't, does, does Skyline Chili have a limited shelf life? The cans? No, it lasts forever? Okay, so in the apocalypse, millions of years down the road, you can get it. Well, our bodies have limited shelf life, uh, even if that does not. Uh, but on the other hand, the things that we do in our body matter the way that we use them. They have consequences, ongoing consequences that affect us and others. And Paul's establishing here what you might call a sexual ethic. How do we think rightly about our bodies, even with respect to things like our sexuality? Again, the Bible is pretty honest about these things and straightforward. There's not a lot of shyness that goes on in these arenas here. And what Paul says uh, effectively is that the purpose of your body, of, of my body as well, is bound up not, not solely in or primarily in the pleasure of eating or sexual expression. That's not its main purpose. That's something that exists and that we have to take into account, but those, those absolutely have their place, but only in the right way at the right time to the right degree. That's true of anything. We did a, a series on, you know, the seven deadly sins. Uh, a lot of it is, you think about lust. I mean, lust is just wrongly ordered desires. It's either at the wrong time or in the right way or to the right degree. You've taken something that's good and it's slightly distorted. And Paul is saying here the same thing with the body. There's, there's good. And it, there's a right purpose, and a, but it has a shelf life. And yet in the meantime, what you do does matter. So you need to learn to use it in a way that honors God in the right manner. And what he says here is that all of those things, yeah, eating is good, even pleasure is good, but those things fall under the lordship of our Savior. Did you catch that in the verse? The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. That's the real purpose. So understanding that the lordship of Christ informs the way I think about and use my physical body is the way that God has designed it. So we don't dismiss that reality, but rather we see it in the proper context, in the proper way. And our Savior, uh, who, by the way, had a body, he was a, a man, 100%, not only had a body, but died, and then furthermore was raised from the dead. You see this connection here between 
what he's talking about sexual immorality and the resurrection of Christ? How in the world are those two things related? Well, they're related because it's a, a bodily reality that we all await if we're in Christ, the resurrection. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, it was, it's called a, a first fruits. This is what's going to happen to you. You're, you will be raised again. And the Bible has a doctrine of a, a, a resurrected body. And the proof positive was that Christ did it. So how does that future make a difference for how I use my body now? How? Some of you know Chris Woodard. I've referred to him, I think, not that long ago because his son uh, died of a heart attack just a little over a year ago. Um, his son, uh, Jaden, was 21, 22 years old, something like that, in his young 20s. He had an issue with his heart, and he'd had some heart surgeries. Um, they knew there was a time stamp, but didn't know how long. Uh, Ohio State student, he was in, in New York City on an internship, and he just, he just had a heart attack and died. Um, and, and Chris, who's a pastor of, uh, down on the West End at River of Life, really struggled, of course, like who, who wouldn't struggle with the death of his son? And it got him going on a little bit of a journey. And one of the things he started thinking about, I think at about Easter time, was what difference does the resurrection really make? Like for him, right now, as, as a pastor, as a father who's lost a son, there's this theological concept of the resurrection, but does it make a difference now? I mean, really, does it? And as he went through this journey of trying to unpack this, he did a sermon series that turned into like three months long of trying to unpack what difference the resurrection actually makes since that for us is a future reality now in the present life that we have. And one of the sources he went to, the person who's written a ton on this, N.T. Wright, who's got this kind of a classic book on the resurrection and the Son of the God, uh, the Son of God uh, says this, which I think is pretty interesting. The resurrection is not just hope for the future, but from the future. And I'll try to unpack that a little bit, but think about this. You see the resurrection, you think it's not just hope for, yeah, we're going to be erased, but it's actually hope from the future back to us right now. Now, N.T. Wright spends a about a book that big, unpacking kind of that, that reality and, and looking at the evidence for it and what difference it makes. But just to try to sum it up a, a little bit, what he seems to be saying is that living out the resurrection is a picture of life in a future world. And our goal in the now is to live out the new creation right where we are. And the, we can do that because Christ was raised from the dead and we will be raised as well. So it's not just hope for the future, but from the future, the reality of, of resurrection, it, 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 it kind of works backwards in that sense to say that is an ongoing reality and a picture of what life and new creation will be like. And you have the opportunity to kind of bring that future into the now. That's what your goal is in life. That's why we're on this journey. It's like you're... It, it makes me think again of this, you know, rabbinic saying about marriage, where it says you're supposed to. The goal of marriage is to sow the seeds of Eden. You know, back back in the garden, everything was great. 
Husband and wife, it was all fantastic. Everything was great with God and everything too. It was awesome. And then when sin entered the world and all the destruction and brokenness came with it, we have a context then, he says, this rabbi in, the, in marriage, to sow seeds of Eden as if you have an opportunity to begin sowing the seeds of redemption, of forgiveness, of patience, of mercy, of grace, of love. You can do that. You have the opportunity. And this is a picture of the resurrection as well, that in the now, I can live out that reality. And that's kind of why I'm here. And Paul makes this connection about Christ being raised from the dead in the context of sexual immorality because it has a bearing in the way I use my body now. If everything is under the lordship of the Savior, even in that context, I can do it. And it's hard to live that out in a creation that's broken, in a creation that has probably different definitions for immorality than we might probably That's hard. It's really hard to do. But we have to prioritize that as a duty in living out our kingdom kingdom citizenship. And that has all kinds of implications beyond what we're talking about. But that is part of our goal. Your body, though, that's a physical reality now, is not meant for sexual immorality. Because immorality, that is behavior that's outside the scope of God's design and a picture of of what life ought to be like, even in the new creation. Immorality is a characteristic of the broken creation, not the new one. You're not sowing seeds of Eden in that scope. So Paul says you need a bigger picture. And remember, I used the phrase over-realized eschatology before too. And and that's just the idea that we have heaven now. Too much of it. And so we don't have to worry about obeying rules. But Paul's saying no. You can't do that. On the one hand, yes, you live it out now. On the other hand, we're not there yet. And you are called to be distinctive. You've been purchased with a price. And even in the way you use your body, you evidence that reality. This was something that Chris had said when I was listening to, to him speak. I'm not who I will be, but I'm not who I would be. You know, I'm not who I will be at some point in, in the future in the resurrection, but I'm also because I am a follower of Christ, not who I would be if he hadn't come into my life and begun to work. And we live in that tension. But there is a progress. And these things do matter, even the way we use our body in our pursuit of food and pleasure and expression or whatever the case may be. Now, the good news is we don't do that in our own strength. We can't live that reality out in our own power alone, nor do we have to. And the Holy Spirit, mentioned in verse 19, is a gift from God for us to overcome these things. He's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We can't do this alone. And we can't do this alone not even without the sense of the Holy Spirit at work in us, which is a a vibrant, real reality. We also need each other. This whole book is kind of written in the community context. You're not alone. The struggles you face, the failures, the, the, and the successes are not done alone. So when Cole says, I'm engaged, that's a community win for us too. It's an exciting development in his life. Although next week we'll see that singleness is also a really good thing to celebrate because in the church we tend to applaud you know, people who are married. What about the single person? You didn't get engaged. Woohoo! We need to celebrate that too, as we'll see. That's a little teaser for next week as well. So, what do we do? What do we do with that? 
Well, there's actually some practical ways for us to work that out. But he's even unpacking a little bit more about this, this connection with Christ. And in verse 15 and, uh, and 16, and really going on into 17, he says, Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So what he's talking about here is a doctrine called our union with Christ. And this is something that you could take an entire New Testament course on. Our union with Christ is central in guiding all behavior, including our sexual ethic, the way that we use our bodies. This sense that we are one with Christ. There's a vital organic connection when we become a believer such that we are united with him in spirit. And if that's the case then our ethic, the way, we, the way that so informs not only a, a reality there out in heaven, but how we act, it's out of accord with who we are when we're engaging in something that might be immoral. It just, it, it doesn't, it's nonsensical. And Paul obviously talks about sin and what we do with it and how we handle it in its ongoing reality, but here he wants to get to the logic behind it and say, why would you do that? You are one in Christ. Some of you know I, I've referred to Alex Aronis before. He was more involved in the early life of Redeemer Church uh, and preached to us some, and it was a, a mentor for me, a, a Navy chaplain. I think he's 90 years old now. He moved out to San Diego. One of the phrases he often used, he talked a lot about being with Christ, like Christ, and for Christ. And kind of use that as a, a way of thinking things through a little bit. And part of his way of shepherding my spiritual formation was to say, in what, what ways am I uh, practicing or understanding what it means to be with Christ? And then, so that's, that's an intimacy kind of thing. And then like Christ, my, my behavior. And for Christ, like reaching other people, doing works of justice or whatever the case may be. And his observation is we tend to kind of not be good at practicing all three of those. And at least for him, he said, with Christ is the central thing from which the other two flow. If you're not with Christ, those other two things will be misguided. And it doesn't just mean with Christ like, oh, I spent quiet time this morning. Some of that is our, our union with Christ. If we don't understand the full reality that we are one with Christ, in organic, vital union with him too, then these other things will go off, off a little bit. And Paul's saying something kind of similar here. You, you're, your bodies are members of Christ himself. Do you see the, the organic union there? The with Christ. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. In, in John 15, Jesus is getting at something similar. Your connection with Christ is like, a vine, and the branches all interconnected. He is the source flowing through you. You can't be separate from it. And so it doesn't make sense. There's a reason why when scandals happen in the church, a watching world and the people within are undone and say, was it real? There's, 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 a, there's a, an appeal here to, to recognize how could we take a member of our body and unite it with another who's not designed to be the recipient? And Paul here has a, a high view, by the way, 
not only of our own personal sexual ethic, but the dignity of others that they matter to. This isn't just about self-gratification. And he's pushing toward maturity to say, like you would otherwise, your attitude should be considering others as well. So it's not just about you, it's about them. That's what he'll get to later in the book also. There's a protection of one flesh, the honor exclusive to husband and wife. And a protection of the one who's not the spouse as well. And part of how we honor God and rightly use our bodies and dignify others, how we even do that is in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Sins of this sort have consequences for others and ourselves in a way that just has to be avoided. Run away! For anybody who gets that reference. Run away! Run away! Right? That is great advice for sexual temptation. Run away! You know, Forrest Gump it. Just start running and don't look back. This happens in the Bible. You know, the classic example is Joseph, who was a handsome guy, and he was, you know, a servant, a slave in somebody's house, and the, 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 you know, the master's wife had his eye on her and on him and, you know, approached him, and he had an opportunity to indulge and to engage, but he literally runs away, and he suffers a consequence for it. In God's plan, however, it all works out. What was intended for harm is used for good because he was committed to that kind of integrity that said, when it's there, I'm going to see it and I'm going to flee it. Ooh, just came up with that. <laughs> you run away. And, I mean, just to say something I've said a million times before to remind you, it is always easier to avoid temptation than resist it. It just is. And if, if, you're, if you're wondering, you know, ooh, but... Because one of the tricky things about it, right, is people say, don't do this. And some of you are like, what am I missing out on? <laughs> I, you know, this is the laws like that. You don't even get. I remember being part of a group once in one of these books. Uh, what's it called? Some of you guys have been around the church forever. It's Men in Temptation. and uh, You guys have read some of these books, haven't you? <laughs> Every Man's Battle. I don't know if you ever heard of that. I read two chapters. And I'm like, I have never thought about some of these things before. That sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> I have never been tempted to do that, but I'm kind of curious. Now, I'm like, I got to stop reading this book. <laughs> its intent was to kind of, I'm like, it's going in the wrong way. And some of that is sniffing it out beforehand. You know, the enemy's at work here. And there's a, there's a lure and a temptation but it never ends well. Do you know of any story that ends well with those things? I mean, ultimately, God can use it. If you've done, there's nothing he can't deliver you from. Is the price worth it in your life? I don't know anybody who says it is. Run away. Treating this matter lightly suggests, according to Paul, you have not rightly understood who you are and the cost that it has taken to get you right here, where you are today, where you're living and breathing and that's what he concludes with. He says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? 
You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And the verb tense there for this buying at a price indicates a one-time payment. You were bought one time. And this is what Paul says later. One sacrifice for all. It's not like Christ has to die again for you and again for you because you've made a mistake again. It's a one-time payment. And if you grasp the reality, that once-for-all payment for somebody who didn't deserve it, well, then the natural thing to do is to honor God. Honor the one who has paid the price. And the question I've asked here is, why would you not do everything possible to honor the one who has secured that freedom for you? And I, I mean that honestly, to like contemplatively. Why wouldn't you? Because there, there's an answer to it. If we are in some way not even committed to that process, why not? Why not? I mean, maybe we don't understand really what we've been freed from, the cost of that freedom. So I would say, if that's true for you, pray it today, Lord, show me. Show me what I was freed from. If you really grasp what you were freed from, one of the natural steps is going to be, how can I honor you? I, I guarantee it. You know, I referred to my, my, my grandfather who was a prisoner of war for 19 months. You know, my, my dad's sister was born. He didn't even know he had a child. Nor did my uh, grandmother know if her husband would ever return. And so when those troops mar- marched in, I think it was MacArthur who came in and set them free. Do you think that he wants to honor the people who set him free? Would he just mistreat that freedom now? No, not at all. He knows what he was freed from. And one of the reasons that it may not strike us is because we just don't really see the depths of our sin. We don't grasp the reality of the freedom. We don't know the depths of the cost that was paid. So maybe we need to pray that God would show that to us. Now, that, that hole's going to go pretty deep <laughs> if he starts revealing it to you. But Christ is there. That's what he paid for. It's not so deep that Christ can't cover it. He died once for all. So maybe we need to pray, Lord, show me. Maybe we've just forgotten. Maybe we've forgotten. Because that happens over time. You know, 9-11, remember. It, yes, but year one was different than year 20. Or you know, it would be different than year 30. And the farther you get from the cost that was paid for your freedom, the more you forget the sacrifices that were made. And so pray, Holy Spirit, who's in me, remind me. I've forgotten. Maybe you're lethargic. You're apathetic. You're used to this. You need to pray, ignite me. Set a fire in me so that I don't treat lightly the things here. Maybe you do treat it lightly. And then you need to pray, Holy Spirit, convict me. You know, sh- convict me. Because, I mean, I'm just not moved by any of this stuff. And it's not like you can just kind of work yourself up into a spiritually mental lather to all of this. The Holy Spirit might need to do that. So pray that he would. Maybe we're just weary of the battle. You're so tired because you've tried to honor God and you keep failing again and again and again. And you need to pray, Lord, help me overcome. Show me forgiveness. 
Holy Spirit, fight battles I seem to lose all the time. And when the enemy whispers, see, you're not real, you just go back to the cross again. And you say, I have been bought at a price. Maybe it's something else entirely. Maybe you don't even care about this stuff. And I would suggest that your prayer needs to be, Lord, save me from myself. Because there is a real battle going on and there's a real price that was paid to rescue you from a trajectory that doesn't have hope in the resurrection. Because only those in Christ, when the resurrection occurs, are going to enjoy all the benefits of this things being as they are. And if you're not a part of that, then your resurrection is in the opposite direction. In despair, in hopelessness, a world where there is no God. A world of absolute pain and sorrow and suffering. And all the worst things that you're experiencing now are just a taste of what that life will be like. And the best things you're experiencing now are the best you'll ever know. And here's the thing. If we're experiencing the resurrection, looking forward to it, the best things you have in your life right now, don't even compare to the worst if there is going to be something like that there. I don't know. Sign me up. I want that. Not only hope for the future, but from the future right now. And that needs to affect the way that I live all of my life. So let's be honest about that. And let's be inspired maybe to look for ways that we can honor God even with our body. Father, thank you that you have given us this text. I, there are a lot of texts I just don't want to preach from because they're hard but I know they're good. And, and to maybe just me, one voice, hopefully expressing all the hearts here, uh, that though there may be a lot that is permissible for us, would you bind us to the desire to do only what is beneficial? And would you expose the places in our hearts where we've clung to something that is mastering us and maybe baptized it with spiritual language? Give us eyes to see things very clearly to denounce those and to be free, truly free in Christ, the kind of freedom that, that, that David talks about. I delight to run in your law, the freedom that gives us joy of serving Christ and of using even, even the basics of how we use our body to honor you. May that be the clarion call, the clear call for us Thank you that even when we struggle with this and we dishonor you, there is yet a one-time sacrifice, a purchase price we could never pay that Christ himself has done. We glory in that reality. And we don't want to abuse that privilege. We want rather to honor you. So we pray that we would do that well. Now and for the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, sometimes I ask just for thoughts. Um, and I'll do that now, just for a couple minutes, just as we respond and reflect, a lot of times to kind of unpack this a bit. I know some of you, it takes some time to think and process, and that's, that's totally fine. But are there any sort of quick responses, 